This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. It has been my great pleasure to be the host of Radio Parallax for these past, oh, 17 or so years. 19 years of radio, all told, and hope to see the 20th. I do want to note, for those of you who hopefully look forward to hearing us on terrestrial radio on a weekly basis, that we will be taking a break for several weeks, four or five, I think, in midsummer, but hope to be back toward the end of August. My understanding from the good people at KDVS and KZFR, which are the two stations where you would be hearing us terrestrially, that this probably will not be a problem. We do, after all, have over 800 programs in our archives, of which it should be possible to select four or five for your listening pleasure. That's the plan anyway. Just wanted to give you a heads up. Our hope is that when we come back in late summer that we'll be moving away from our current events-driven program and do a little more, well, miscellaneous things. Something perhaps along the lines of what they do at This American Life. And if we really wanted to stretch ourselves, maybe something that, like what Joe Frank used to turn out. We would love to be able to imitate him on a, a few occasions. Mr. Millen is not sure that that's possible, and he may be right. But, you know, something parallel to the good works of Mr. Joe Frank. We hope to hear from you. Dear listener, you by now hopefully know the kind of things we like to talk about and the things we'd like to talk about, so send us some suggestions at info at radioparallax.com. I expect to find some great pieces of advice and direction uh, from you, and we will no doubt follow some of it. And speaking of feedback, I got a request after last week's program to address the this item that was in the news that... Mayor Pete, if he becomes president, which is, well, not very likely, but let's assume that he does, he says I would be America's first openly gay president, but not America's first gay president. I was asked about that by a listener, the listener in question being Edward McMillan, who without a doubt has heard more of this program than any other human being, alive or dead. I'd like to think that I'm, I'm pretty good with presidential trivia, having memorized the presidents of the U.S. when I was in the third grade. So my initial answer was, yes, I believe it to be a true statement, which I guess we should now go into, shouldn't we? America's first not openly gay president probably was our 15th president, James Buchanan. Buchanan's name came up a couple of weeks ago when we were doing our quick review of the party system in American politics. And by the way, it was great fun and a great pleasure to bring on last week's program after we did that little look back at politics. My very own high school American history teacher slash government teacher, Mark Mattingly. I hope that uh, we will have Mr. Mattingly on again and, you know, sometime soon, although this rate is looking like August, but Whatever. Let us roll the clock back to the 1830s. In the year 1834, in fact, during the second term of President Andrew Jackson, 
James Buchanan lived in Washington in a boarding house. I believe he was a U.S. congressman at that particular point. James Buchanan was from Pennsylvania, where he had served as a state legislator before becoming a congressman. Also living in this same Washington boarding house was a senator from Alabama named William Rufus Devane King. According to Washington lore, the two men lived together and did so for the next 10 years until Rufus King departed for France to serve as America's ambassador. That was in 1844. James Buchanan would also serve in the diplomatic corps. He was ambassador to Great Britain on three different occasions and served as minister to Russia. Rufus King was also up the political ladder. In the election of 1852, he was placed in the Democratic ticket with Franklin Pierce, and they won. Historians seem to agree that the two men had a gay relationship. King was noted to be quite a dandy in the terms of that era. Buchanan supposedly had an unfortunate incident in his youth when a woman he was keen on committed suicide. That may have contributed to the fact that he was America's first and only lifelong bachelor. During his presidency, his young niece served as his quote-unquote first lady. It's perhaps worth noting that the Alabama senator owned a lot of slaves and ran a plantation near the town of Selma, Alabama. One historian less than flatteringly described the Alabama senator as a tall, prim, wig-topped mediocrity. He apparently did have a penchant for wearing long wigs which at that point in time were no longer in style. King referred to the relationship as a communion, and King and Buchanan attended social functions together. Contemporaries noted their closeness. A man named Aaron Brown referred to King as Buchanan's better half. A man named James Lowen described Buchanan and King as Siamese twins. And in her later years, Catherine Thompson, the wife of cabinet member Jacob Thompson, expressed her anxiety that, quote, there was something unhealthy in the president's attitude, unquote. President Andrew Jackson referred to the legislative pair as <laughs> Miss Nancy and Aunt Fancy. Although, as far as I know, historians have not dis determined who was who. When the men died, they made sure that their, their correspondence was destroyed, although apparently some still got through, including a letter that Buchanan wrote about his life after King had departed for Paris which I will quote from. He said, I am now solitary and alone, having no companion in the house with me. I've gone a-wooing to several gentlemen, but have not succeeded with any one of them. I feel that it is not good for man to be alone and should not be astonished to find myself married to some old maid who can nurse me when I'm sick, provide good dinners for me when I'm well, and not expect from me any very ardent or romantic affection. I would have to say that to our contemporary ears, that Sounds like a guy describing a gay relationship. When it comes to presidential and vice presidential trivia, both men certainly make the grade. King was the only politician from Alabama ever to make the presidential ticket, the top or the bottom. Although he became vice president on the bottom of the ticket, he was suffering from tuberculosis. This was in 1852. And apparently he went down to Cuba to try and restore his health. He was too sick to return to Washington and of in fact, never did preside over the Senate in his duties as vice president. Congress made a special dispensation so that he could be sworn in outside of the country in Cuba. He came back to the U.S. five weeks into the term of Franklin Pierce and died. Buchanan was out of the country a lot in the 1840s and 1850s himself, which is probably why he got nominated for the presidency. As we mentioned a couple weeks ago, 
The country was in great turmoil over the issue of slavery, and the fact that Buchanan was out of the country and not involved in the political fights meant that nobody knew where he stood. His position is described by historians as rather central. He didn't like slavery, so he said, but certainly wasn't going to go to war over it. One does have to wonder how much of his attitude toward slavery and the South was influenced by his boyfriend, who, after all, used a lot of slaves on his 750-acre plantation in Alabama. Another reference I stumbled upon indicates the two men roomed five additional years besides that decade uh, in that rooming house. And her press reports at that time did speculate about the men's relationship. Evidently, the postmaster general reportedly called the pair Buchanan and his wife because of his decidedly pacifistic attitude toward the South and its murmurs of secession from the Union. James Buchanan has always been considered possibly America's worst president and the man that did a great deal to let the Civil War happen. In the end, we ask, was James Buchanan America's first gay president? Is it a fact or is it a myth? Well, Radio Parallax is going to go with fact. Though barring some, you know, as yet undiscovered letter turning up, we don't think anyone's going to ever be able to say with 100% certainty. Anyway, we know we need more good news items on, on Radio Parallax, and fortunately I have one here. We talked some years back about the fact that bacteriophages could be selected out to kill bacteria, not chemically, not using antibiotics, but by those little biological entities known as viruses that are specific for bacteria. Turns out, yes, even bacteria, small and simple as they are, are preyed upon by something even smaller and simpler, viruses. The good news from England is that doctors used a genetically engineered virus to save the life of a British teenager suffering from an infection that wouldn't respond to antibiotics. Isabel Holdaway, now 17, was given a 1% chance of surviving a respiratory infection that had returned even after a double lung transplant. In a last chance effort, her doctors teamed up with Graham Hartful at the University of Pittsburgh to see if phage therapy, the use of bacteria-killing viruses to attack infections, might work. Unlike antibiotics, phages have to be carefully selected to match every strain of bacteria. Hartful and his colleagues identified a phage that could neutralize the infection, then removed one of its genes to make it more efficient. Holdaway's infection was brought under control six weeks after she started phage treatment. While she isn't fully cured, she still received daily infusions of the viral cocktail, her symptoms have been significantly reduced. Doctors hope the success will lead to more clinical trials for phage treatments. We have uh, spared no, uh, no expense and time and effort to, to slam quack therapies on this program. Your host is, after all, a physician. But we are happy to note that from a biological standpoint, phages make perfect sense, unlike, say, homeopathy. Being based on sound biological principles, they do have a future for humanity. Unfortunately, with the rise of antibiotics in the 20th century, this useful avenue for treating people's diseases was largely abandoned by the Western world. The only places it hung on were in Georgia and Russia. In the era we live in, with increasing antibiotic resistance, it's time we uh, dusted off this technique and put it into wider use. There's quite a bit of good news in that news item, which, unfortunately, I have to now balance off with our stat of the day. 
Evidently, a new report by an investment bank, UBS, looking at the cost of pharmaceuticals, reveals that Americans, that's us, spent nearly two-thirds of all money spent globally on new drugs from 2012 to 2017. We would remind you that America represents like 4% of the world's population, but we're spending two-thirds of the money on new drugs as it stands. Are pharmaceutical companies ripping us off? Well, I'm glad you asked. Yes, they are. We do fully understand the need to charge a price that will enable you to continue research and producing new drugs. But the truth is, Big Pharma spends more money on advertising than they do on research. And thanks to a very comfortable relationship they have established through their lobbyists with the U.S. government, they get to set their prices. They've lobbied very hard to close the loophole of the fact that people can go up across the border into Canada by the exact same drugs being made in the exact same factories and bring them back home at a fraction of the price. It's a racket. The Economist quoted Alex Azar, described as America's health secretary, and I'm not sure what America's health secretary is. Is he the Surgeon General? I don't know. At any rate, he said to the pharmaceutical industry, if you think the cost of your drug will scare people from buying your drug, then lower your prices. On June 14th, Bluebird Bio unveiled a gene therapy to treat an inherited blood disorder that will cost nearly $1.8 million per treatment. Yes, $1.8 million per treatment. Shortly before, Novartis, a Swiss giant, priced its gene therapy for spinal muscular atrophy at $2.1 million, making it the world's most expensive medication. Outrage over such headlines is a rare thing to unite President Donald Trump and his Democratic detractors. Many are cheering the administration's latest effort to force drug makers to disclose the list price of drugs in television advertisements. Team Trump gets it right once in a while. Thank God. Speaking of drugs, there was a thought at one point to regulate uh, nicotine delivered in so-called electronic cigarettes. Why aren't they called electric cigarettes? Use electricity to, to, to heat them, to heat the vapor. I don't know. Maybe there's some electronics involved in the device when you pull on it. I don't know. At any rate, epic, economic forces prevailed upon the government to regard them just like any other cigarettes, which, of course, you can buy everywhere. The debate goes on as to whether they are safer for you. Certainly, pure nicotine doesn't contain all the tars and crap that are in, uh, in cigarettes. But nevertheless, nicotine is the one that's implicated in heart disease, which kills far more people from smoking than does cancer. Although promoters have noted, well, it actually is safer in the heart disease standpoint. We think that your risks of dying only double when you, when you vape. They triple if you smoke. The manufacturers of uh, these e-cigarettes are trying to, to claim that, well, they, they can help people quit. Right. If you believe that's their motivation, we have a bridge we'd like to sell you. We should remind you that smoking is the world's second biggest avoidable killer after high blood pressure. Statistically, it wipes 10 years from each smoker's life expectancy. Remember the stat back in medical school that every minute you spend smoking is a minute taken off your life. I have no reason to question that. I guess San Francisco just got on board to ban electronic cigarettes, but I didn't really read the article on that, so I better do my homework before I talk about that. But boy... Curious things coming out of the government of San Francisco. 
since I seem to have my doctor's white coat on for today's program, let's, let's talk a little bit more about some of this stuff. We've talked about how we like to go to our archives on this program on a regular basis, and I have in my left hand an article from June 2007, an editorial in New Scientist magazine saying, Say no to drug ads. The subheadline was, Advertising prescription medicines does nothing for people's health. Well, that may be true, but uh, we have not seen an end to any of that. In fact, it's only expanded in the past 12 years. I think I want to hit again another article from New Scientist. This was from February of 2017. A piece by Michael Brooks asked, Is popping a daily pill really any way to keep your heart healthy? The article was titled, Cholesterol Wars. It noted that in the past 30 years, cholesterol-reducing statins have become some of the most widely prescribed drugs globally. The author of this piece, Michael Brooks, got involved in the controversy because back in 2014, at age 44, and fit enough, he notes, to have completed a string of Olympic distance triathlons. He exercised most days at the gym and noted that my body mass index always came up as obese, but he never worried about it because he was the very definition of big boned. But when a nurse did a finger prick test of his blood cholesterol, it turned out that he was twice normal, probably due to genetic factors. Changing diet and lifestyle won't help, as Dr. told him. The only solution was medication, statins. The connection between cholesterol and heart disease was widely accepted in 1984 with the publication of the results of the Lipid Research Clinic's Coronary Primary Prevention Trial. That's a mouthful. This followed about 3,800 middle-aged men over seven years, showing that lower levels of the bad low-density lipoprotein cholesterol correlated with a reduced risk of a heart attack, fatal or otherwise. Enter statins. These drugs work by inhibiting the production of an enzyme crucial for making cholesterol in the liver. And with their increasing use, trials showed that they seem to reduce heart attacks and strokes in people with high cholesterol or who are otherwise at high risk of heart disease. You know, people who smoke, don't exercise, are overweight, and so on. But in a succinct sidebar to the article titled Cholesterol, the Good and Bad News, Brooks noted that most of the cholesterol in your body is made in the liver. However, most people can bring their blood cholesterol down to levels considered safe through diet alone, just not necessarily by reducing cholesterol intake directly. A review published in 2015 said that although dietary cholesterol does increase blood cholesterol, it's impossible to draw rigorous conclusions on its effect on heart disease risk. Consumption of saturated fat seems to have a greater effect on blood cholesterol levels, although it's far from clear that this leads directly to increased risk of heart disease either. And of course, there's good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. Although at this point, I want to jump ship into a Discover Magazine article titled, How Good is Good Cholesterol?, which concluded that high HDL levels, the good cholesterol, doesn't always mean a lower risk of heart attack. And at this point, let's jump further to an article on the CNN website by Dr. Elizabeth Clodas, a cardiologist. To quote from it, High cholesterol, here's a pill. High blood pressure, here's two pills. High blood sugar, here's two pills and an injection. Clodas notes, I used to practice that way till I realized all I was doing was covering up the downstream effect of poor diet with a bunch of drugs instead of changing the food. She notes, I am a practicing cardiologist. I trained at some of the finest medical institutions in the world, including Mayo Clinic and Johns Hopkins, and have been repeatedly recognized for great patient care. But what I really want to achieve professionally is to put myself out of work. 
Unfortunately, cardiologists have endless job security, and that's because we're treating the wrong thing. My waiting room was full of patients whose numbers I'd made perfect, but who still looked sick and felt terrible. Some even felt worse with all the drugs I put them on. No cures, just a never-ending revolving door of follow-up visits. This is not why I went to medical school. Yet, no one seemed to be doing anything about this or even acknowledging it. So I became obsessed with finding a better solution and found a company that formulates food to help lower cholesterol, backed by pharmaceutical-level science. Dr. Clotus notes that a cereal might contain fiber and boldly tout the ability of this nutrient to lower cholesterol, but the fine print reveals that a serving of the cereal also delivers the added sugar equivalent of three cookies, meaning the positive health effect of the fiber might be completely negated. But how is the average consumer supposed to know this? They're not. They're just supposed to like the taste and feel good about buying that cereal. My patients have been trying to quote-unquote eat better, but they were getting duped. She notes that two decades ago, the NIH cholesterol guidelines mandated that changing diet should be tried for two or three months as the first step in treating high cholesterol before putting anyone on drugs. But today, she notes, many of my peers expressed skepticism that a food-based solution could work. Clotus notes that it took more than 80,000 hours of training for me to become a cardiologist. How much of that time was spent on nutrition? Zero. She also notes that many doctors are monitored according to whether they prescribe medications. She said, if I don't follow the cholesterol guidelines by prescribing statins, insurers will send me letters scolding me. If I don't talk to you about the cholesterol-lowering effects of walnuts and oat bran, nobody cares. Physicians even get paid more when a drug is prescribed. A medical encounter that generates a prescription is considered more complex, which qualifies for higher reimbursement. In contrast, if a physician uses some of that very limited time with patients to talk about antioxidants and omega-3 fatty acids, they get nothing more. So in her efforts to get insurers and patients an alternative food-based option for cholesterol lowering that could compete with drugs on every level, well, she went out and approached big food companies and investors, naively thinking they would love her idea and want to help produce good-tasting foods that lowered cholesterol. She notes, they did not. Food manufacturers thought our ingredients, such as real almonds, walnuts, pecans, and blueberries, were too expensive. They wanted to replace them with flavorings, artificial sweeteners, and quote-unquote fruit bits. Investors thought the clinical trial we proposed doing to confirm efficacy was too uncertain. They told us we needed to have patients so we could charge prices like the pharmaceutical companies. No wonder this had never been done before. There was simply not enough profit in it. Patient health, it seems, is not very valuable. Anyway, I think it is probably too early to state whether this is really going to work as much as she hopes, but by God, we ought to try. I mean, we really should give this a go. I look around, walking around, bicycling around, driving around. I look at the the obesity of the populace here in America, and it seems pretty clear to me that people are spending too much time looking at little screens and not enough time exercising. Oh, yes, Exercise does have a role in keeping you healthy and keeping your blood lipids at a lower level. Let's try that too. Well, not that you need more alarming headlines, but unfortunately I'm going to supply one more. It turns out, according to a recent study that was published in JAMA Internal Medicine, patients who take anticholinergic drugs face an increased risk of dementia. In fact, this represents a 50% increase in the possibility of you developing dementia. 
On the face of it, it's a pretty alarming statistic. These studies suggest that the link is strongest for certain classes of anticholinergic drugs, particularly antidepressants, such as paroxetine or amitriptyline, bladder antimuscarinics, such as oxybutynin or tolteridine, antipsychotics, such as chlorpromazine or olanzapine, and anti-epileptic drugs, such as oxycarbamazepine or oxcarbazepine. The researchers wrote in the study that there was a nearly 50% increased odds of dementia associated with a total anticholinergic exposure of more than 1,095 daily doses in a 10-year period. That's equivalent to an older adult taking a strong anticholinergic medication daily for three years versus no exposure. After reading this, I looked up the medication list of a family member who unfortunately did suffer from dementia in later years, and noted that, yes, what do you know? One of those bladder antimuscarinics was a medication she had taken for years. I sent this news around to a few people. One who had experience with patients with dementia wrote back to say, well, this is a scary stat, but did suggest that we step back and take a look at how these percentage increases can be misleading. She said, your chances of getting dementia are probably 1%, And if this increases it to 1.5%, well, overall, that isn't quite as alarming. But then again, it is. We've talked in this show in the past about how statistics can be misleading. We're not going to do it again today because we're just about out of time anyway. But let's just say this needs to get looked at. All right, in the minute or two we have left, I would like to quote from George Will, which is probably the first and last time I'll ever say that on this show. Turns out yours truly did not make the necessary arrangements to go hear Mr. Will speak at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. George Will has been a lifelong Republican, an unabashed conservative, and at age 78, surprisingly, has left the Republican Party. The quote I'd like to cite is that he is referring to the Republican Party of 2019 as a cult of personality. I'd mentioned a few weeks back on this program that he was calling the Republicans of today a cult, but I really do like the phrase, a cult of personality. In years past, communist leaders were famous for... uh, developing cults of personality around themselves, although a lot of strong men did as well. And of course, the personality he's referring to is the goofball that sits in the White House, who is, according to Jonathan Chait, writing in nymag.com, considered a security threat by both the Pentagon and U.S. intelligence officials. Chait cited a harrowing little detail that got tucked deep inside a New York Times story last week on a new cyber offensive that the U.S. has mounted against Russia, in which malware has been inserted into Russia's power grid as a deterrent to another attack on our elections, which I have to say is a pretty hair-raising little revelation, along with the fact that Trump, according to the Times, has not been briefed in any detail on the operation for concern over his reaction and the possibility that he might countermand it or discuss it with foreign officials. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. You talk about people wherever you go. You just talk. 